welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hello, Susan. Hi, Guthrie. And we have a very special guest today, David Travis from User Focus. Hi, David. Hi, Guthrie. Uh, so why, who, Susan, do you want to talk about how you know? Why uh, is David here? Oh, well, that's, yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> is that what you want me to talk about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I actually haven't, uh, David, we haven't met in person, right? No, but I, I've read yeah. all of your books, Susan. So I'm <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's not true. Uh, no, no I, I don't know. We could quiz him because there's I, this something is, this back is, this in the of, last yeah, century. He probably topics. doesn't know. Um, yeah, huh. so, so she has she has like her popular <laughs> books, but then she has some more obscure ones from back in the day that if you really had, that would be a collector. I don't even think they're in print anymore. Yeah. No, anyway, okay. thank you for reading my books. And yeah, so we know about each other. And yet we've never met. I, it's, it's kind of amazing that we've never like been speaking at the same conference or something like that, given uh, the, the close relatedness of the work we do. So I'm really happy to, to have you on. I think it's going to be fun. And you you were saying before we started recording, you had mentioned that you've listened to some of our podcast episodes. So you feel like you know us and yet we don't really know you. So that's yeah, it's, kind of... it's that bizarre thing. Particularly, you know, like when you when you um, hear a radio presenter and you get to know their voices and you listen to them every day and you kind of get a good idea of what they're like and you feel you've got a relationship with them. And obviously, <laughs> if you if you met them in the street, they would think that you were just some mad random stranger. <laughs> and it's kind of like that with you and Guthrie, really. I feel that <laughs> I I feel I know you because I've been listening to a. Um, I've binged listened to quite a few of the uh, the podcasts. Well, so. one of the, one of the things that I think I've noticed is that I think for both of us, but myself especially, um, Susan, you can speak for yourself. Um, like it's very hard when I'm talking, doing like public speaking or I guess podcast speaking, which is sort of like this. It's sort of the same thing. Um, extemporaneous speaking, I suppose, is maybe the official category. It's very hard for me not to just be myself in a very like vulnerable way um so so i so i do feel like you know if someone listens to me talk or something they would kind of understand me as a person pretty pretty easily because i can't i i find it difficult to like you know wrap you don't it have in, like, a, a cold, professional yeah the persona. cold professional persona i'm not I, i'm not sure if i do a great job with that really you mean it's the real you i've been talking to the whole time <laughs> I didn't know that. So, David, um, you you are speaking to us from the UK, right? That's correct. And uh, you said you were today. You were looking out over a an idyllic pastoral view. Well, you didn't use those words. I'm I'm using those words. Yeah, well, it's a good interpretation. I think. Um, so, yeah. So, I'm I'm working from home today because I'm I'm, uh, I'm traveling tomorrow and before traveling. It's quite a long journey I'm on tomorrow, and before travelling, I always like to have the day before working from home if I can. Um, and it's a glorious day in where I live. I'm looking out; I can see trees and the sun shining, and there are birds in the garden. So um, I could be in. You're in. You're in Chicago, aren't you? Well, Guthrie's in Chicago, but I'm in Wisconsin, and I'm looking out over a very similar scene. Okay. So we get the 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 rural scene, and Guthrie gets. Uh, Let's see. Yeah, I got a downtown I got Chicago. A, I got a house that I look at on one side, and uh, <laughs> my driveway near more concrete buildings on the other. All right, so that's the setting for this conversation. So, David, I'm I'm just really excited to have you on, and I want to hear. I mean, there's so much I want to ask you. I'm not sure where to start, but I guess I'm going to start with an introduction about. About David? And his history. Oh, really? Yeah, sure. Okay. So, um, David, I'll tell you the little bit that I know about you, and then you can fill us in on the pl- the, the big gaps that I've missed. How's that? Oh, go ahead. I'm really excited to see what your, <laughs> your picture of me is. <laughs> so, David um, is a very well-known uh, user experience slash psychologist consultant. Uh, he 
works for, and I think maybe founded, but I'm not sure about that, a company called User Focus, which is based in London. And he has a PhD in psychology. Does this sound familiar, Guthrie? And um, uh, he has a, he's written several books. He has a, a brand new one out called, uh, fairly brand new from the first of the year, uh, called Think Like a UX Researcher. And we're definitely going to talk about that on this podcast because I, I think UX research is not only very important, it seems to be suddenly a very hot and groovy and in topic these days. Uh, let's see, what else was it I wanted to mention? Oh, and like uh, like we do, Guthrie, he is really big on online video training. And so probably a lot of the people listening in, if they haven't you know, taken one of his online video courses, they've probably heard about his online video courses. So um, David, I don't know, that's kind of like it. I don't know what, what music you like to listen to or whether you have cats or anything. That's that's pretty good, actually. I think if I was asked to list the highlights, I think um, I would have come up with pretty much what you've come up with, really. I think the only, the only thing I'd add to that is um, the, the length of time I've been working in user experience. I counted up the other day. Um, yeah, that's and, scary. And I'm, I'm 58 now. Um, and basically, I started when I was about 27, 28, yeah. working in the field. Um, so about 30 years, really. And I mean, like yeah. you, I mean, you, you know, they're, 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 I think we, we've, we, work, we work in a field which has had, which I think to people outside the field, they kind of think it's something that happened within the last five years. You know, it, it, the perception is it's a very new discipline um, and kind of grew out perhaps of the internet and I think they ignore the fact that it's based on stuff going back well at least till the second world war but maybe even uh, before that with the the idea of focusing on uh, on the users of a system rather than on the system itself so um the and then we, we you know we, we we both got this long history working in the field of uh well I guess well when I started I guess it was called in the UK it was called um ergonomics in the u.s right. i think mm. it, it was it was human factors yeah uh, i didn't know it was called it was, ergonomics yeah I haven't heard yeah that one. in the uk it was you know over here in the in the u.s ergonomics tended back then and probably still does to refer to the physical you know aspects like um uh how large are uh, is the normal worker's hand uh, and therefore, what, how, what size should the knobs and and uh, tools be so that they can effectively use them, right? And that was, and so we've had a different definition of ergonomics on this side, I think, than you guys have. You know, it what what it was called when uh, I first started was man machine interaction. Oh, that's the, a politically incorrect term. Correct. And then, and then it was called human factors, you know, and then it kind of went from there. But yeah, I, you know, that's, I think it's, you know, you, you have your own history. Everyone has their own history and their own mindset. And you, uh, I often forget that other people don't have that history and mindset, you know, that they do think it's relatively new. And um, so I, 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 it's always interesting to me to, to talk to people and see, you know, what's their view of the history of, of what, we're, what we're doing. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I remember, did you have this view? I remember um, m- many years ago, because, yeah, my history is similar to yours and goes back quite a long way, when you you almost i mean in in fact i'm surprised i didn't know you before because you almost knew everyone in the field i knew everyone uh, at least every consultant anyone who worked you know didn't work for a large corporation doing this work uh, everyone who was an external consultant in the ux in the us we knew each other because there were like a handful there just weren't that many people so yeah, and uh, that's that's certainly changed. 
<laughs> so, t- so t- tell what's what's like the the newest thing you're working on. What's what's like you finish? We're going to talk about the book, but let's hold off on that for just a second. You know, build anticipation. So, what are you what are you working on now? Now that the book is done, yeah. You know, you know what, what I want to say. Here's here's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you <laughs> that I'm, I'm I'm working on artificial reality. Uh, I'm working on virtual reality, actually, in in head-up displays in cars um, and autonomous driving systems and artificial intelligence. Um, and I'd like to tell you I'm working on all of those things because, obviously, they're very sexy, they're very modern. Um, but I'm working on, in, in fact, as I've worked longer in the field, I find I focus more and more on the fundamentals and on the simple stuff. Mm-hmm. So what what I mean by that, like when I when I my my business has changed quite a lot um, since I set user focus up in two thousand and one. So initially, we were pro- predominantly a consulting firm in human factors and uh, user centered design, and then over time that the the, the the that we started introducing training into that mix, but then over time the the mix became more and more training and less and less consultancy until about maybe five, six years ago, when really there was there was a switch and the training became much more important than for our business than than the consulting. And that's not just because we were promoting the the training more. Um, it was because there was a change in the industry. I think that there was a point when uh, early on organizations they kind of just needed some people to come in and do this 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 bizarre work that human factors ergonomics usability people did they didn't have anybody that with those skills they wanted somebody to come in and do an assignment and then throw the work over the wall and then they would take action on it or not as the case may be um but then what happened more recently is that teams now realize they need they, that kind, those kind of skills in-house. They don't want to recruit them with, with consultants. They want people permanently on site with those skills. But they've got, now they've got the people, but the people don't have the skills yet. But they've got lots of people that are at the very beginning of their user experience career. And as a consequence, I found that my my work now, I spend more time working with um, early stage user experience people. There's also some work I do with more advanced UX uh, researchers as well, but predominantly it's with those early stage people. And they just, they need to know the fundamentals. They need to make, I need to help them know how to do field visits, how to run a usability test, how to analyze the data, how to present the results back so that they're uh, persuasive. So in fact, I'd like to say that I'm working on these really great high-tech new products. Um, but in fact, I think what I'm doing is actually more important. I think what, what I'm doing is trying to create an army of foot soldiers that can go out and do this work rather than being trying to be the one person that does all of it. I think it makes more sense to try and um, build a culture where you can get more people doing that. So um, that's... <laughs> That's a long way of answering that question about what am I working on? What's the most exciting thing I'm working on at the moment? So uh, um, that's the answer. Well, because we, you know, that we've definitely seen sort of a similar thing where, you know, you, uh, my understanding is that, you know, there weren't that many UX professionals a while back, and when so if you were a UX professional, man, were you a professional? And there was, there was, there were all these very highly skilled, very smart kind of, um, you, you know, p- people doing very kind of advanced UX work. But now, everyone is getting into UX, and it what what it's actually done is even though UX is more popular popular than ever, um, it's it kind of it's felt like the like the median knowledge of any one UXer actually has gone down, as. Uh, as mm-hmm. sort of people are beginning into the field, and so there is so so it it I'm it does it kind of makes sense that you're going back to more basic UX work because that does seem to be the need 
Um, yeah, and one of the things I find when we talk to people, Guthrie, like who who contact us because they want us to come in and teach a workshop, for instance, a lot of times what they say is that you know they have a UX team, but there are people are coming from such different backgrounds. Some of them are new, some of them are quite experienced, but they, there's all these gaps in their knowledge and ability. You know, so you have someone who's been doing, you know, interaction design work, but they never really learned much about research. Or you have someone who's doing research, but they don't know a lot about interaction design. And so um, sometimes we're coming, you know, the, the training we do is to try and fill those gaps in for the team. Do you find that, David? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I was listening to one of your episodes. I think it was when you were speaking with... Uh, with Nick Fine, and you mentioned that on one of the courses that you ran, you had somebody on the course with a PhD in uh, a science discipline, and you also had someone on there with an art history uh, degree. <laughs> um, and and and, it, and I think it has captured that breadth of interest, hasn't it? There's yeah. a there's a wide range of of uh, people come into it from a wide range of backgrounds, but as a consequence, what they don't have is a common terminology when they're talking yeah. about design and particularly design research um, and I think what the uh, what one of the reasons this term UX has it's almost be, it's almost become a in some ways it can become a bit of a meaningless term because it means different things to different people um, and instead what I'm what I try to do in my courses is help people understand that user experience is not it's not a thing it's a it's a process uh, that you need to go through, which incorporates research at the beginning, an understanding of user needs, and then developing into what we might think of as prototyping or early design uh, before we start doing usability testing. But the the focus is on trying to get people to under to to grasp that common terminology, to have that uh, common understanding of terms like uh, um, interaction design. What does it mean? Information architecture. How does that differ from interaction design? And get them to. Um, then, uh, then at least afterwards, when they have a discussion amongst the team to decide what they need to do next, they've got that common terminology they can use, and then they can use that to to, to build upon. So certainly, that's um, uh, one of the the aims I have when I go in and work with clients. And I'm certainly finding that uh, there's this incredible breadth of people that are now working in the field, which is a good thing. I think it's I mean, if, again, if you go back like 30 years, Susan, you'll know that the in order to get clients to to do this work was a, such an uphill battle because they, they 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 often didn't appreciate, or at least they wouldn't they didn't see the connection between having something that was user centered and bottom line profits, but when with the introduction of the internet, then it became obvious because if your product wasn't usable, if your website's not usable, people won't order your product. So it's, 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 there's a clear one-to-one -one relationship. But back in the day when uh, VCRs were busy uh, flashing 12 o'clock because people didn't know how to set the clocks, I remember working with a major manufacturer of uh, VCRs at the time who said, well, all of the effort that I was encouraging them to go into in order to design their VCR so that it was going to be very easy to use was pointless because people wouldn't discover these features until after they purchased the product. And what they wanted was things to make people purchase the product. They're not really, they're not, frankly, they were less bothered once someone had purchased it and struggled to use it. Uh, and it was a harder sell back in those days, you know, to, to try and get people to, to take this stuff on board. It was always, I found just very large companies who or companies for who had a very had a vested interest in making sure things were usable like yeah often uh, it was it was if there had been a disaster yeah so yeah they needed that didn't they they needed they needed a product failure um, or worse um, in order for them to realize hold on we need to take action and they were all at that kind of very low level of of maturity in working out how important it was whereas nowadays it's completely different i mean it it's it it's very rare now that i find myself having to go in and sell the idea of user experience to a company it does still happen but um 
Uh, it's much of a rarer situation today compared to how it used to be. And that, that that's partly, I think, because we've got this wide range now of people who all think they know what user experience is, <laughs> rightly or wrongly. I mean, they may be wrong, but um, at least they feel it's a good thing. So the, the, the kind of the term user experience, although I think there's a problem, which is it means different things to different people. One common thing is that that term tends to be considered to be an important thing. Whatever user experience means to them, it's important. <laughs> they know that it matters, but they may have a differing opinion on how they would define it. Yeah, you know, I had a, I, I actually had a situation once many, many years ago where I got a phone call from a very large insurance company and the guy on the phone said, uh, I hope you can help us. Uh, I just had everyone in my call center said that if we didn't fix the software, they were going to unplug the computers and walk out of the room. Excellent. And could, yeah, and so and he's like, "Can you help us?" I'm like, yeah, "Sure." And I was like, "Yeah, right on. Unplug the computers. I like it." So, yeah, things have changed a lot. But um, I agree with you that that you know the definitions are tough. You know, I teach. Uh, I'm an adjunct professor at um, University of Wisconsin. One of my kind of local. Uh, campuses and so I, it's always interesting to me one of the reasons I like doing that is it's you, you know in um, in the whole design thinking world there's this idea of uh, interviewing extremes extreme participants you Absolutely, know? yeah, and I think yeah. it's a good. I think it's something that we don't do. We we haven't traditionally done enough. Done of. right. We've always, or, you know, let's do the target. The, exactly. The representative well, there's, this, user. there's this belief that what, what what you need to do is have a representative sample, and when right. you've only got like five or ten people in your sample, that's kind of a ludicrous objective to have anyway. <laughs> but and I'm thinking having those extremes is a um, is it helps you understand what the limits of your your product. Um, is sorry, and, but you were saying. Yeah, so I I feel like by by teaching college students and then, you know, it, I, I mean it's part of it's for me it's part of an extreme. So it forces me to think about what we do and how we explain it in a different way because and it's not that these that that the you know these are usually juniors and seniors in college, and it's not that they don't know about. UX, and it's certainly not true that they're you know not tech savvy because they're very tech savvy, but just they have a really different view on UX. And I mean, and these are these are people who uh, some of whom are studying user experience, like that's what they're focusing on in their degree. Others of whom are, um, you know, just regular computer science majors and sometimes people who are not computer science majors at all. And, uh, you know, it just gives me a different view on how people are seeing our field, you know, uh, and it's, it's really valuable for me and it forces me to change the language that I use and, you know, the way that I, that I talk about it. So I, I, yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's always interesting, I think, to come up against your own, which is what happens to me, my own cognitive biases about the field, my own definitions that I don't realize, you know, I have but have never explained to other people, and uh, keeps me on my toes to do that. And you know, you teach a lot, and you do the online courses as well, and you know then I'm assuming that the best way to understand something is to try and teach it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think, well, actually, there's, there's, I think there, there are two ways that I try and learn stuff. One is by teaching it, and the other is by writing about it. So um, on the user Focus website every month, I, I usually publish a, a, a new article. And that article is really, um, although ostensibly it's there to kind of 
try and help people understand something. The real motivation for those articles is really me trying to work out how to explain <laughs> something so people can get it. I mean, yeah. so sometimes I'll be on a course and someone will ask a question, um, which I'll provide an answer to. And for one reason or another, that answer is not very satisfying. Either I'm not satisfied with the answer or I can tell the student has just not just just doesn't agree with me or um, uh, hasn't understood the point I'm trying to make. And then uh, and that'll bother me. And then I'll come back and I'll travel back and I'll be thinking about how should I explain that? And then that becomes that, that kind of seed of an idea then becomes an article. And it, and um, it, it, I think it makes the practice of consulting better as well, because I think if you only do consultancy, Often you can't articulate why you're doing the things you're doing because you become so practiced as an expert. You just know that this is the right approach. I've seen this. I've, I've seen this work in another client's organisation. We did it this way. It worked that way. Let's do it again. But you're not kind of. It, it feels very. It can be very practice led rather than very theory led. And I think the advantage of all of training as well, which is why I like the combination of consulting and training. When you train as well, you're able to. Bring, make sure that your consulting practice is theory-driven. And when you, when you teach people, you can provide practical examples, case studies, which bring the whole thing to life. So it's a, it's a powerful combination, I think, having to teach the stuff that you actually consult in. Yeah, and you know, one of the reasons I think also that I like uh, in the university setting, you know, a lot of times, if you're teaching the online video courses, which we do a lot of, uh, and you 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 often get feedback, but but you may not get as much feedback as you would like or need. And when I'm teaching in in the college setting, for instance, uh, I gave a test during my you know one of the tests in my courses this past semester, and um, everyone in the room except one person uh, got this question about choice architecture wrong and uh the 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 distractor in the multiple choice test that they picked showed me exactly what you know what the misunderstanding was and i was so surprised that everyone got this wrong and so you know it's like obviously i did not explain that very well mm. and and it also um brought up to me it was it was I thought it was so interesting because they uh, confused choice architecture with information architecture well I had never realized that that would be an easy confusion to make I mean they're both of the word architecture they're both about choices yeah right and it and yet that had never dawned on me that that might be a common confusion I, if it's not explained well I've always had trouble with a lot of the terms that are used and i i complain about them sometimes because in uh, the ux terms or mm -hmm. the well uh, i think the whole because choice architecture is not a ux well, term, the, whole, really. the whole the whole the whole thing um, okay you know because because they are like some of the terms like you know like um you know self-story very <laughs> very clear Right. Yeah, but some of them are really quite complicated, and these concepts are hard enough already to explain. But yeah, like yeah, they, and then give them a weird name. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, exactly. That that don't you know? So choice architecture, I actually kind of like. Um, well, that's because you you're you're a behavioral economist. Well, that's a really 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 tough concept. It is well, apparently how, it is. I didn't think it was a tough well, what's, concept. What's, See, that's what's the better name. What was interesting? Right? That's what. The, what you know what's a better name for that that's the problem i don't know i don't know concept. and to me it made sense and i you know i understood the concept and so apparently i taught it really fast <laughs> like i took like just a few minutes and gave like two examples and that was not enough that's what i discovered that was not enough so yeah teaching is um is uh fun yeah and teaching is fun and writing is fun now here we have on the we have on the call three writers. So uh, Guthrie's uh, just finishing up his first book, and which will be published shortly. And uh, I've written several. David, you've written several. Um, so I want to talk about 
your your book, Think Like a UX Researcher. Ta- and I know you've probably had this this question. I I've been on so many. Uh, in, I've been interviewed so many times that people want to talk about you know the writing process. Um, so tell me about whether you like writing books or not. Like, what is the is it a love hate thing? Do you love it? Do you hate it? What what's your no? It's it's a hate hate thing. I think it's um, a what hate hate thing. I hate oh. writing books. Um, yeah, I mean it's because I, I I wrote my. I, my first book I wrote was called Effective Colour Displays, yeah. and that was published in 1986, 87. Um, and it came about because I was doing a PhD at the time, and my specialism was colour vision. And at the time, which shows how old I am, yeah. colour displays <laughs> were just being introduced into yeah, the office. They were brand new, very they exciting. Were, and a guy called Andrew Monk, who works who works in the field, um, was editing a series of books, and he said, "Hey, we need someone to write a book on on color displays." And I, I, I'd never, I didn't even know about this field, human computer interaction, back in those days. Um, but that was my first introduction, and then I wanted to write the book because I felt it would be a good way. Uh, yeah, you know, as it, I was at the beginning of my my career I thought that would be a good way to <clears throat> to get my name known and I, the other thing was right I could go into clients and I could show them a copy of my book and that would persuade them to to commission me to do work the, I, I saw the book as being a great statement of credibility um, and it was a nightmare to write I hated <laughs> I hated writing it but I managed to finish it and then it didn't lead to any <laughs> consulting work Nobody was oh, interested. Yeah. It, 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 maybe, I don't know if maybe, I, whatever I needed for credibility, the book really wasn't the thing by the time I got in to see the client that was they weren't interested in. Now, despite that, I then thought I'd write a second book, mm-hmm. which was called E-commerce Usability. E-commerce Usability, crikey, it takes you back, doesn't it? The whole idea of e-commerce, it sounds like uh, video cassette recorders and, uh, and long-playing <laughs> albums. But anyway... Um, when I wrote that book, again, that was even harder to write. Um, and it took, I remember, I remember sitting in um, uh, my home office in a different home at the time without great rural views of trees. Um, and uh, it was, it, it was like, it was, it was like the proverbial getting blood out of a stone. I just, because <laughs> I, 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 I like to write very concisely. And that's one reason I like, I, I like writing blog posts because I can be concise and I don't like to write to to be expansive I like to be as concise as I can mm. and I just couldn't get the word count needed so I had to spend ages kind of beefing up what I was saying kind of adding and so that kind of things to all of the paragraphs I was writing to make it longer and when I finished that book I worked out the the amount of money that I made from the book itself in terms of, <laughs> of sales that I would have earned more money if I'd worked behind a bar um, <laughs> on minimum wage and th- than I would have from the royalties from that book. And I said, I'm never going to write another book again. Um, uh-huh. And then recently, um, I got to, I've got a, a good friend of mine called Philip Hodgson, who um, is also uh, runs his um, a UX consulting company called Blueprint Usability. He's based in Chicago, actually. Um, oh, he is? And, yeah, he's, he's British, and I've known him for a long time, um, ever since he used to work at Motorola, really, back in the um, uh, back in the 90s. Um, and the, um, uh, and I, don't, I don't know whose stupid idea it was to write a book, whether it was my <laughs> idea or his, but we thought, I thought, <laughs> if I can get him involved, then that won't be so painful, writing the book. I can get Philip to do all of the work, and, and I can just kind brilliant. of act more, I can act more like an editor. Did it work? Uh, no, it didn't. No, I was going to say I've tried that. It that doesn't work. Yeah, I thought, but but actually, having some, writing with somebody else, which I would have thought beforehand, would have been a a bad idea, was actually a really good idea because not only did it mean that there, there, there was some times when I could coast and I could let Philip write the next few. Um, parts of the book and then send them to me for to review and then that would galvanize me and get me really motivated to write some of my own stuff so as a consequence we we from beginning to end we finished that book in three months um, huh. which is you know my other books that were like 
nine months to a year and it was painful this was three months and it was relatively easy as well so uh, and it, it was I'm so I'm so proud of that book as well compared to the other two I mean the other two I'm, I'm proud of in the sense that um, the, the, the I think the, the, the books are good um, I mean look at them now they the first one seems vaguely academic um, the second one uh, perhaps not as advanced as I thought it was at the time um, but this particular one, I'm really proud of. You know, I, I take it down from the shelf and I flick through it. And one of the things we added to each of the chapters, I don't know if you've seen the book, uh, Susan or Guthrie, but at the, at the end of each chapter, we have um, a series of kind of discussion points. So um, there, there, are, there are about 80 sections of these throughout, and the, throughout I forget, maybe 40 or 50 of these throughout, uh, pepper throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we do is we get people to reflect on the stuff that we've written so it's again this combination of kind of consulting and training and getting people to understand the kind of things that they've read and they and and, and it's great when you read them because it's like an exam question and you 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 read them and it really gets you thinking about hmm well what would I do in that situation so for example there might be a um, I mean, there could be a, a, a chapter that we've written about providing feedback to stakeholders. Um, and at the end of that chapter, there'll be questions about the approach that we've recommended. And then we ask people to reflect on a time when they've needed to report back on their research um, and they found it hasn't gone to plan. Um, how would they adapt some of the things we've talked about in this essay so that it would help? And those um, prompts are, I, I think, personally, when I read the book, I'm I I read the prompts at the end, the questions at the end, rather than the essays themselves, because I find them really interesting. They really get your uh, your brain going. And we kind of came up with that idea because um, there was a book, the book Steve Portugal wrote a while back called uh, uh, Dead Doorbells and Batteries, uh, Dead Batteries and Doorbells, you know the one. Um, yes. But in, in that, he, he has a bunch of different people that have written separate essays, but then he writes another essay at the beginning of each of those sections where he summarizes really what those uh, what those individual essays are about um, and we took that idea and used that but then thought well how could we turn this into a series of questions for readers instead so the um, the upshot the long answer to this question is I hate writing books but this final book worked out it was a much more enjoyable experience and I think this, the reason is because I had a co-author and because we thought of a different way of putting a book together with these kind of questions at the end, which made it really motivating rather than just simply grinding out more content. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I find, you know, it, I haven't, I haven't uh, asked that kind of question of a lot of authors. I just remember I was talking with Steve Krug once, you know, Steve Krug who wrote Of course, yeah. Don't make me uh, think and uh, rocket surgery made easy and so on. And, you know, he's been such a popular writer in the field of usability. Uh, his, his, that, his book, Don't Make Me Think, I mean, it's m- several, many years old and still really selling a lot. So he's been really successful at it. And he told me he hates writing books. Like it is, it is the most horrible, painful thing he can think of to do, <laughs> and, and it's interesting because you look at you look at Steve's books and they're really thin. You know, they're, yeah, yeah. They're, 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 and I think I wonder if he has the same problem that he kind of <laughs> when he writes, he, he it's very concise, and he's often publishes kind of they want you to 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 pad things out and kind of increase the page count, and and sometimes it you don't you don't want to naturally. You might be very concise yeah. in the way you express things. And, and that's certainly the case with Steve's books, I think, because they yeah. are very concise They're and very, very concise. powerful, yeah. Yeah, and if you, if you um, I mean, for people who haven't worked with a publisher, um, which is, I think, happening less and less as the publishing industry is struggling, but <clears throat> when you work with a publisher, <clears throat> they give you the page count before you start writing the book. At least yeah. that's been my experience. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. So, you know, it's like this book is 244 pages. And if you have more to say, too bad. And if you don't have enough to say, too bad. You know, you've got a contract which says you will deliver this book by yeah. this date and it will have yeah. this many pages. And you often don't 
control the font size either. So it's not like you can just make things really large. Yeah, we had this discussion with our publisher to begin with because they gave us a page count and we said, well, how many words to a page? And it was a long time before we could get an answer from yes. them about yes. how many that should be. You think, yep. how bizarre is that? What a way to express <laughs> The length of it was like weighing it, wasn't it? You know, it should weigh <laughs> half a kilogram or something. But we're not going to tell you what weight the paper is. Exactly. Yeah. How much it should weigh. Yeah, yeah, I know. And you know, um, we've turned to uh, the the last book I did, which is actually a second edition of a previous book. Um, we self-published, and the book Guthrie's doing is largely self-published. So, I think that's what we're 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 freeing ourselves a little bit from from some of that by uh, by doing it ourselves. But let's talk about the book Think Like a UX Researcher. So, um, I'm I I uh, what I decided to do. Uh, for, was, buy, was buy a copy? Oh, no. no, I have a copy. But what I decided <laughs> oh. to do for the podcast was actually look, bring the table of contents up on a screen. So just say that's what that's from because I just decided that would be easier for me while I've got my microphone and my cup of coffee and everything on, on the desk. Um, so I, I'm just trying to think about what I, what I want to talk about here. I guess tell me what in here do you think is um, might be unusual or people who, you know, if someone picks up a book, you know, someone says, yeah, you should learn more about UX research. So they, they, you know, read this book, but what in here do you think is perhaps something that m they might not expect to see in the book? Uh, well, I guess there's a, there's a couple of things. First of all, there's a, uh, an initial section we've called it setting the stage. Mm -hmm. um, where we talk about basically what good UX research looks like. So what what define what 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 does a good program of UX research look like? Um, and the reason I think that's one one thing that that the one reason that's unique is because often people dive straight into doing the field visits, running the usability tests, analysing the data, and we have chapters and, and essays that cover that material, but they don't often stop to think, well, what defines good quality research. And there's one article, there's one of those particular um, uh, uh, essays in there that I think is especially good. And I can say that because it was written by Philip rather than me. And it's called um, uh, Thinking Like a Detective. I knew you were going to pick that one. I'm looking that one, at that one on my screen. Yes. And, I, and, and that, and he's, he's, I think he does a fantastic job there of using a kind of a Sherlock Holmes analogy um, in order to understand what good research uh, looks like. So uh, that I think that is one aspect of it that people might not expect to see. Um, a, a second is that when we were creating the kind of the, know, the curriculum, the, um, the outline um, of the book, this, the, the first five chapters kind of naturally came together to do with setting the stage, planning UX research, conducting UX research, analyzing UX research, and reporting the results or persuading people to take action on the results. Those kind of, those sections came together fairly clearly. Um, but we realized there was something missing. And I, I have a, a Facebook group uh, where we have a group of people that take uh, my Udemy courses and we think, come in and they discuss stuff related to user experience. And one of the bigger drivers for them isn't so much how they plan the research and conduct the research. It's how do they build their career in user experience research? So we've added a, we added a sixth section to the book with about half a dozen essays in to do with the qualities that we think a, a good user experience and research needs uh, and also a good user experience leader uh, needs and also kind of a um, a way of people to be able to rate their own expertise in the mm -hmm. field, a kind of a um, a way of for them to reflect on their own competencies and areas where they may be less strong, and that helps them then work out what they where they need to to move to next. Um, so I guess those would be 
uh, those, those, those two sections, this one to do with setting the stage, this one to do with building a career, people might not expect. But I think the other thing that's unique about the book is um, the, 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 the way it's structured. It's structured as a series of, of essays that people could pick up and kind of read when they're, when they're just having a coffee or perhaps they're, they're in the bath, um, hopefully not with their Kindle, perhaps with a printed copy of the book, but um, they, they just want something to read about the, the length of a long magazine article, mm-hmm. um, like a new, I guess like a New Yorker style article, but at the same time, not so long that they need to bookmark it and then come back to it later. Mm-hmm. Because often, I don't know about you, I'm, Susan Guthrie, I'm sure you're the same. If I look at my bookshelf, I've got, 50 60 user experience books on there and i've read cover to cover probably seven or eight of those um some of the others i've got certain well-thumbed sections and there's others that i I bought from amazon they came and i i I had all the intention to read them but (laughs) i just couldn't get going with them and what we wanted instead was a book that you didn't need to read cover to cover yeah but you can you can pick it up and you can open it anywhere and you could read a, an Find essay. Find something interesting to read. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that kind of matches the way we read these days, doesn't it? Because, you know, we, we, we tend to read more episodically because of you know, the, the way we read articles on the internet. Um, people are busier. You know, if you're, you're commuting, you don't often have time to read a, um, uh, 50 or 60 pages. And as a consequence, the idea was to give people something they could pick up read and, and get something from so it's not just to be entertained although we're hoping that they would be entertained but it's it's also that they can read something and it would question the way they practice user experience research mm-hmm. get them to reflect on it um and then if that if and, and then when they commute back the other from the from work in the evening they can turn to another part of the book it doesn't need to be the next chapter the next essay or the previous essay but anywhere in the book and that will mm-hmm. get them thinking again so I guess that's the other unique thing. It's kind of the, the presentation of the book. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And I, you know, and speaking of that that last section, the building career and user experience, I love the one on uh, how to wow people with your UX research portfolio, because I think uh, you know the whole question of it's a big controversy right now in the field about having a portfolio, showing a portfolio. You know, and how to do that effectively, and should you do that, and what can you show and divulge without, yeah, without uh, 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 violating the NDAs you signed, and so on. But I think with UX research, it's you know, it can be particularly tricky. It's not as though, you know, I think there's this idea, um, and I I see my students struggle with this, uh, or people I know in the field because. Um, you know, suppose I don't think you can show your UX interaction design work either easily in a portfolio, even if the NDAs weren't a problem. You know, where the work that we do, it's not like we can show, you know, the homepage of a website and that def- defines the work that we do. Uh, yeah, like, I think it also ignores the fact that I, mean, I, I work, I predominantly work with scrum teams. Yeah. And um, what I do, I do more this day, more at the moment, is really around coaching UX researchers on those teams in order to work effectively. But I've also done my fair share of working as the UX researcher on those teams. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, when you look at look at a thing that's been designed, whether it's a, a screen or an interaction or a, or a product, it's very difficult to say, well, this is the bit that I did. Right, right. Because, so, because it's right, a, it's, you, you can't do that. So I think, you know, and then add to that with UX research, there might not really be anything to look at. Yes. So, and I think that there's this focus. And one reason that UX researchers are wary of portfolios is they, they have the belief that it needs to be visual. It needs to be yes. like a portfolio that an right. artist would put together. Right. When really, it's it's a it's a series of case studies. It's stories. And you need to exactly, tell stories. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, if, so and, I think- and, and those, you know, when you're working in consultancy, you're very used to the idea of putting case studies together as part of a proposal to show the client that you've you understand the business that they're in and you've done similar work in the past. And there's no reason why. UX researchers can't adopt that model as well and provide case studies telling the story of their um, 
their work on a particular project. And of course, you know, they can they may also be able to introduce some visuals as well. Correct. Although although hopefully not the uh, cliched shot of people in front of a whiteboard moving <laughs> sticky notes around. Post-it notes around. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. that's what we need. More stock yeah. photography of people with post-it notes. Yeah, but, I think that that's important too. Well, it's uh, so it's a great book and, and I'm really glad you guys wrote it. And uh, I, I hope people listening will, will check it out because um I think that, you know, there are a lot of UX books out these days, a lot compared to, you know, many years ago. And there are more and more UX research books out, but I think it's still, you know, if you, if you think about, you know, how many U- books about UX research are there compared to just books about UX, you know, there's not, not as many on, on UX research. So, um, and I think it's, I think the style you used of the, as you said, the New Yorker article is is unique and is a great idea. Great, thank you. All right, so anything else you want to tell us about the book, though, before we, we leave that topic? Um, oh, actually, well, yeah, one, one thing. The, when, when the book was first published, in order to encourage people to purchase the book early, uh, we offered some bonus materials to people that bought the book. Uh, the bonus material comprised a video from me talking about, um, uh, basically, it's the, it's the video of the book. It's like a half an hour um, video, a bit like an online um, uh, seminar describing mm-hmm. uh, the book. But we, we also included some material, including a an exercise you can play with your design team to do with user experience maturity a couple of extra essays we couldn't fit in the book um and there was some other material as well that we included in this bonus pack and we took it down after a month or so but i'm thinking for for your readership or your listenership um if any of them purchase the book um, as a result of listening to the podcast um, if they contact me by email i'll give them access to the bonus material because oh, i still neat. have it it's just taken down from the uh, the website where it was initially. So a special offer only for your podcast. Only listeners. for human tech podcast listeners. Exactly. I love it. <laughs> okay, that's a great idea. Thank you, David. That's yeah, a, the, the, they need to buy the book that. in order to get access to the materials. Right. But um, if they uh, buy I'll, the I'll book and then send you an email, so where should they? What's your email address? Uh, so it's david travis at userfocus.co.uk. Okay. Wonderful. Awesome. All right. Um, so tell us where you're, you said you're headed off on a trip. Is this a, a work trip, a fun trip? Yeah, no, no it's, a, uh, it's a work trip. Um, where so where are you headed? So I'm, I'm heading to, uh, to Glasgow to work uh, with a client for a few days, um, coaching their um, scrum team in, the, in how to go about using user experience methods on products. And it's, it's really the kind of thing that I spend most of my time doing, really. Um, so it's helping a team that, fit, that are keen to get into the field of user experience, um, probably haven't done it before. Um, mm. Maybe there'll be somebody on the team that knows a little bit about it. There'll be somebody that knows very little. And the idea is to kind of bring them all up to speed using this common terminology that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, like choice architecture, for example, um, <laughs> and making sure that um, they understand the you know the, the fundamental processes that they that they go through. So that's where I'm going. That's where I'm headed next. And do you do much speaking at conferences? Do you know I, I don't. You mentioned conferences earlier, and um, I, I used to go to Kai and uh, the UXPA, um, and I, uh, I typically. The, the best conferences were non-UK based, so they required a lot of travel. Now, mm. that's changed over the last few years because there are some good conferences to attend in the UK. But um, the, well, one of the, the things I struggle with, I, I, I don't enjoy giving conference presentations. They're second in my hate list only to writing a book really see now i that surprises me because you like to teach well yeah well i I like teaching groups of people that are less than 20 so if Uh, if it's an if it's an audience of ideally about a dozen people it's perfect because it's like a conversation it's like the conversation we're having at the moment i'm i'm 
I'm I'm um, a kind of a more of a workshop leader than a, yeah, than a lecturer. Than but a when lecturer, you speak, yeah. when you speak at a conference, so I'm speaking at a conference next month. It's called the Behavior and Design Conference. Oh yeah, I know that. I we I haven't been to that conference, but I know of that conference. Okay. Yeah. And uh, there's going to be 500 people there in the audience. So and this has already got you uh, sweating. Exactly, yeah, because I know I'm going to get up on stage and the lights will be on me and I won't be able to see anybody's face in the audience and I will just have to talk for 30 minutes or so about my chosen topic, which interestingly is um, the future of UX research and how to stop it. Uh, and I'll be talking <laughs> about that topic, but I'll, well, I'll be... At, at the same time, I'm just going to be. Oh, it, 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 it takes so much time preparing for these talks as See, well. But to, Catherine and I do a lot of speaking. We like speaking. Yeah, put me in front of a giant. We uh, love. I mean, we recently did a people. talk in front of like three thousand people, and that was a good size. You know, we like that. So, um, but I do have maybe not for this conference. I have just. Uh, uh, I have two ideas for you to consider for the future that maybe would help in terms of speaking, if, if you, you, you don't mind me being... Oh, I'd, I'd love to pushy. hear them. So, one, I mean, first of all, we do, I do mentoring in speaking and presentations, and I have a book on presentations, so uh, this is something I actually love. But one of the things, two things that we have done recently that, I mean, we didn't have a problem before, but we really kind of have enjoyed these two new things we've added. One is we're on stage often together, and that is very fun. It's fun for us. The audiences have told us they love it, that it's hilarious, that they really enjoy it. And I think one of the reasons, so perhaps in the future you can think about getting, you know, a buddy to be on stage with you, because then you can have a conversation. You know, it's not just you talking the two of you can also talk together and back and forth. And that makes it a more, it's just a different thing for you as a speaker. And the audience seems to really enjoy that. They, they enjoy this idea of dropping in on a conversation and listening. That's so, a great idea. I'll get Philip Hodgson over and then you he can should. do all the work. Yeah, yeah that, he can do all the work. He can create all the slides. And then you can just go on stage and talk to him. Um, and then the other thing you might want to think about is uh, something that Guthrie and I have also experimented with that we really like and the audience really likes, which is we have re we have shortened our presentations, which actually makes it harder to put together one, but we've shortened our presentations and lengthened our Q&A. And so we spend sometimes, not always, but sometimes a significant portion, like if we have a, a, a hour-long talk, we'll spend 25 minutes of it on Q and A, and it it means that um, it is more of a conversation, right? Because, and this especially works well in some of the large conferences are doing this, where they um, the Q and A is people type in questions and they appear on the screen, so you don't have to do the whole you know get the microphone out to the to the audience. Yeah, so yeah. logistically, it's just easier, but it means that. Um, <clears throat> It's fun. You never know what you're going to get asked, right? But it means, again, it's more of a conversation. So it's as though someone said to you, well, what do you do about such and such, right? And then you just answer that question and, and kind of have a conversation about that question. And so there's, uh, it's just more fun. It, it allows it to be more, more conversational. And again, I think the audience really likes that it, the spont spontaneous nature of it. I like that idea, and I think the reason is uh, the one, one reason I like doing training courses is because very quickly, you know, within well, within a minute, I'm, I'm speaking with people and getting them to talk to me and tell me about their background and so on. Yes. Um, and then you've got you feel that you've broken the ice. Uh, yeah. But if it, but if because uh, I always like to start my presentations off when I'm speaking to a bigger audience, um, I like to have a. Um, uh, start with a have a joke early on because if once I've once I've said the joke and people laugh then immediately I'm relaxed because I know that they're engaged <laughs> the worst thing is when you give when you when you come up with the joke and then there's just like this ripple of kind of sympathetic <laughs> laughter from the audience and then that makes it worse because then I've got, oh no I've got I've got to say then you can more desperate to come up with another joke all right but, David, we've got to work on this you we're gonna have another <laughs> phone call that, that well maybe we will have people listen in I don't know uh, we'll we'll 
We'll give we'll we'll help you with this. But you know, if you don't like some people just aren't thrilled with, with speaking. I guess Guthrie and I are lucky that it's something something that we really enjoy. It's I like yeah. to be all important. Really? That's why you like speaking? Yeah, everyone's I looking at you. So. I don't think they're, that's they're true. hanging on your every word. Yeah, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's why I don't think that's why you like it. I I, I'm gonna, I, I, I think it's just the attention. I really just think it's the attention. Really? That's so funny. All right, David, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. Um, uh, I hope that we can maybe even do some work together in the future. I think given our background and our mindset, it kind of makes sense. So I think we should maybe explore that. I'd like to. I feel I've got to know you both so well over the last few days listening <laughs> to the, all of your podcasts. To the podcast. And uh, again, let's give some information out. David, if people want to reach you, they should reach you where? So uh, by email would be david.travis at userfocus.co.uk or they could get me on Twitter. I'm at, I'm at userfocus on Twitter and that would be the easiest way, I guess, to get me. Okay, so everyone check out his book, uh, Contact him, uh, follow him on Twitter, um, and you can uh, learn some great stuff about UX research. Um, Guthrie, anything you want to add? You want to take us out? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, just thanks to everyone for everything. And uh, email info at theteamw.com if you have any questions. Um, is, there, is there anything else that I need to add? I don't think so. I think we're good. All right. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. And, and uh, I hope everyone has a great week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks.